As you all know, because I talk about it all the time, I love sports, which means I watch a lot of TSN, which means I watch a lot of TSN Sports Center, which means a lot I watch a lot of TSN Sports Center top tens. Um, if you don't know what the TSN top ten list is, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. They take a clip uh, from some recent sports stories and they find others that are similar to it. For example, when the NHL playoffs started, they did top ten playoff goals of all time. When some football coach gives a truly bizarre press conference after a game, TSN will do a top 10 strangest sound bites. A few months ago, a mascot shot a t-shirt cannon into his own groin. TSN was faced with the dilemma, top 10 embarrassing mascot moments or top 10 ball to the groin moments. It's, it's a tough call. Uh, both are good choices and make for some truly sophisticated television, and I've seen them do both multiple times. But there's another one that I've seen multiple times, and which I watch with... Equal parts glee and secondhand shame. You know when something is so cringeworthy you just you can't turn away? That's what this top ten is. And that's top ten celebrating too soon moments. I love that particular top ten. And there's a few that always get shown. There's one of this female dirt biker who's in the last lap of the race. In fact, she's in the last jump before the finish line. And in the air, she starts fist pumping like this. And that causes her to lose control and wipe out. And everyone else passes her. Um... There's another one they always show. That's a Toronto Raptors game from almost 15 years ago already. They were losing to the Washington Wizards by three points with 3.8 seconds left. And the Raptors inbound the ball to half court, but it gets intercepted by a Washington Wizards player. And he's so happy, he throws the ball up in the air to celebrate. But the timer doesn't start until somebody touches the ball. So he thought the timer had been running. So he throws in the air. A rap, Morris Peterson of the Raptors catches it heaves up a prayer three-pointer and sinks it. And the Raptors tie the game and they end up winning in overtime because he celebrated too soon. There's one more clip that they always show in the top 10 celebrating too soon moments, and I'm going to play it for you now. This isn't from TSN, this is from something else, but it shows you what the clip's about. University of Oregon runner Tanchi Pepio was ahead in the men's steeplechase at the Pepsi Team Invitational and began cheering as he approached the finish line, thinking he was going to win the race. Oh, but not so fast. <laughs> University of Washington's Marin Simon came from behind to win by one-tenth of a second over Tanche. Simon told the Oregonian, I thought he was so far ahead, then I heard the crowd get crazy. And then he started throwing his hands up, and I thought, I don't think he knows I'm coming. And Tan Che told the publication, I just wanted to celebrate winning in front of our crowd. I was excited about it, but the race wasn't over. It wasn't very smart, but it was a learning experience. I love it. That, that other runner came from so far back to pass him. It's crazy. What would you say is the root of all these scenarios, of all these problems? What causes you to wipe out mere feet from the finish line or fail to protect the ball until the final buzzer or, or allow your competitor to overtake you in the last couple, last few yards? Pride goes before the fall. Yeah. What makes an athlete celebrate too soon and lose everything? I think pride is a big part of it. There's an arrogance there. Um, you could call it smugness. You could call it just blatant unawareness. Like in, in that last clip, he had no idea that the guy was that close to him. But I call it something else. Uh, I call it a rookie mistake. A rookie mistake. Not that you need to be a rookie to make a rookie mistake. The player who mistakenly threw the basketball in the air, the Washington Wizards player, 
Um, he had already been in the league for six years when he did that. He's not a rookie anymore. He should have known better. And I bet that Tangi Pepio, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, the, the runner who lost this race, I bet he, he'd run a 1,000 races before that fateful collegiate failure. Neither of them were rookies, but they still made big-time rookie mistakes. In fact, Pepio's uh, quote at the end of the video clip demonstrates this. He said, I wasn't very smart, but it was a learning experience. A learning experience. You know what type of athlete needs experience in order to avoid stupid preventable mistakes? A rookie. That's who. Thus, celebrating too soon and losing your game is a rookie mistake. There's some cockiness there for sure, some pride. But I think there's something bigger, more than just arrogance or ignorance. I think there's something bigger that causes rookie mistakes, like the one that we just watched. More than arrogance or ignorance, rookies are prone to rookie mistakes because they take their eyes off the ultimate goal. Seasoned veterans and champions and experienced winners don't take their eyes off the ultimate goal until the ultimate goal is possessed. They don't fist pump until after they've crossed the line. They don't throw the ball in the air to celebrate until after the final buzzer is rang. And they don't slow down or look behind them or lose their footing or celebrate too soon in the home stretch. Rookies do that. Wise, seasoned athletes do not. Because wise, experienced, dedicated athletes keep their eyes locked on the goal ahead until they've achieved their goal. They don't take their eyes off the goal until the goal has been accomplished. They do not stumble. They do not celebrate. They don't check what's behind them. They merely run hard, keep their emotions under control, strain every muscle, and keep their vision on the goal ahead. And then they claim their victory. This is the story of NBA basketball players. This is the story of collegiate steeplechasers. And this is the story of a faithful servant pursuing Jesus with every word, thought, action, and stroke of the pen. A seasoned veteran on the race to glory. And this athlete, Paul the Apostle, he don't make no rookie mistakes. So we're going to read, um, we're going to read verses 7 to 16. Part of this we read last week, but there's a lot of crossover. So starting at verse 7. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So we read that all last week. This is new. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So the first half of that, verses 7 to 11, we read last week. We looked at how some things in the church are big deals, and some things are big deals, and some things are big deals. Three different categories of big deal. For Paul, who has a background of religious flawlessness and human righteousness, all of that near perfection added up to, we we talked about last week, excrement, fit for the dogs to, to, to dig through. He considered it all garbage. Why? 
Because that was his God. That pursuit of perfection was his God. That whole checklist of good things that we discussed last week, they only distracted him from the one truly big deal, knowing Jesus. Knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, following Jesus, and submitting everything he had to the crucified and resurrected King Jesus. That was the big deal. That was all that mattered. Knowing Jesus, that's all that matters. Experiencing life in him, experiencing death in him, experiencing resurrection in him. That intimate relationship with the risen Lord was the goal that Paul strove for with every word and every action and every stroke of his pen. And it was working. He truly knew Jesus. Every detail of his post-conversion life shows that he knows and loves and follows Jesus, right? He's completely sold out to Jesus. So it's working. And that's where we left Paul last week. He knew what the big deal was, and he was living his life and anticipating his death, secure in the fact that he knew Jesus. That's the message of verses 7 to 11. Paul has his eyes locked on the only thing that can bring victory, and that's knowing Christ. But that's where verses 12 to 16 kick in. Paul wants to be abundantly clear to his friends in Philippi and countless thousands of friends in the church in the centuries since about one thing. If he really had figured out the big deal, if flawless Paul was able to to set aside all the fleshly perfection that we talked about last week, if he was able to rise above the rules and the moral superiority and the legalistic checklist and consider it all rubbish compared to knowing Jesus, if he was able to lose all things in order to gain Christ, then that raises a new question. Had Paul achieved spiritual perfection? Was he as perfect as a person can get? Well, humanly speaking, he had certainly come as close to to fleshly perfection as possible, humanly speaking. But the Holy Spirit revealed to him that fleshly perfection is just stinking, rotten garbage compared to humbly coming to Jesus with joy and thanksgiving. So the question is, did Paul achieve nirvana, in a sense? Was he completely empty of self, completely at peace with the universe and the being who was Lord over the universe? Was he completely fulfilled in all things? It would be easy to read that sense of spiritual perfection into Paul's words in chapter 3. It would be easy to see him as some kind of superhuman, spiritual perfection, super guy. But Paul, the words of chapter 3 make him appear perfect, but then you read the verses 12 to 16 where Paul completely dismantles that kind of thinking. He goes out of his way to show, no, I am not perfect. He undermines any attempt to ascribe perfection unto him, and he does so in two ways. And both are instructive to us. So the first way, the first way that Paul undermines any attempts to place a label of perfection on himself is by plainly stating three times that he is not perfect. The, the best argument that Paul is imperfect is that Paul himself says, guys, I'm not perfect. Verses 13 to 14 are essentially a more elaborate reading of verse 12. He repeats himself for dramatic effect to draw attention and emphasis towards the fact that he really, really, really is not perfect in any way. So there's verse 12, verse 13 and 14 just basically repeat repeat verse 12 with some elaboration. And that's Paul saying, listen, I need you to understand this. I'm not perfect either. Verse 12 begins with, not that I have already obtained. And the Greek hangs there in ambiguity. The, the The NIV adds, Not that I've already obtained all this, but that all this isn't there in the Greek. It's ambiguous, but it's clear from the context that the thing that he hasn't yet obtained is the full and complete knowledge of Jesus that he's been talking about earlier. He he knows Jesus, but he doesn't perfectly know Jesus. 
He's not perfect. Um, it comes up again one comma later, nor have I already arrived at my goal. And again in verse 13, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. So he's trying to be as clear as possible that although he's in the right direction, he has not obtained perfection yet. So no, he ain't perfect. At least, at least not yet. That will come in the life to come, but it hasn't happened yet. The transformational change that comes with fully knowing Jesus is the essence of perfection. Because the sense of perfection contained in the Greek of Paul's writing has to do with fulfillment and completion. When, when the New Testament talks about perfection, that Greek word means fulfilled and complete. It doesn't mean absolutely spotlessly um, idealistic. Like when we say perfect. When we say this is a perfect whatever. Somebody give me an example. So I'm blanking. I can't even think of one. This is a perfect, sure, this is a perfect day. It's sunny, it's beautiful, nothing wrong happened. That's what we think of perfect. It's, it's spotless, it's ideal. But that's not what the Greek means. Perfect in the Greek means fulfilled and complete. It, it is true to its full essence. We are only full and complete in the presence of Jesus. And we will only be fully and completely in the presence of Jesus after death and resurrection. When we are with Jesus, we will be perfectly complete because perfect completeness is only found in his completely perfect presence. Does that make sense? Maybe not, and that's because I'm an imperfect communicator. Suffice it to say that if the question is, hey, Paul, you're pretty great, but are you perfect? Then his answer is, nope, I haven't got there yet, but I will one day. I'm striving for it. I just need a little death and resurrection first. So that's the first way that Paul undermines any sense that he may have achieved perfection. He just comes out and says it. He says, nah, I am not full or complete or perfect yet. I'm still working on it, as we all are. But the second way that Paul undermines any attempt to ascribe perfection to himself is by being abundantly clear that this whole process comes from God and not from himself. Back in chapter 2, which also contains a racing metaphor, Paul wrote, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's God who works in you. It's God who wills you to follow him. It's God who works within us, and he works within us in order to accomplish his purposes. We talked about this a few weeks ago. He does the work to get us to work at his work. Work, 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 work. And all the work is his. We are merely vessels. Vessels that he chooses and empowers and loves endlessly. So don't devalue yourself. But we're just vessels. He does all the work. He deserves all the glory. To go back to the racing metaphor, he's the one who designed the racetrack. He's the one who laid out the racing rules. He's both the umpire and the head coach. He's even the Gatorade that powers our muscles to run. And to top it all off, he is the prize that we claim for victory at the end of the race as well. He is everything. The whole process is his, not ours. Paul makes this clear in verses 12 and 14. In verse 12, he declares that, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Christ Jesus took hold of him. He started this whole thing. And in verse 14, he echoes this. He says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He calls you for something, and that something is himself. It's all, it all comes back to him. It's Christ who takes hold of us and fuels us for the race. And the prize at the end is the thing that he has summoned us for. In other words, he catches us, he coaches us, 
and he calls us home. It all comes back to him. Whatever limited goodness we have, never mind perfection, just goodness, whatever little bit of goodness we have is to be credited to Jesus Christ. It all goes back to him. So you get it. Paul wants us to be clear that he is not perfect. But he also wants to be abundantly clear about one other thing. Paul knows perfection is not attainable in this life, not even for himself, with all his great checklist of things he's done. And that is kind of an amazing thing to say about Paul, because we are not Paul. Paul, this is Paul who rejoiced despite suffering. This is Paul who initiated countless churches and wrote half the New Testament and was a commissioned apostle. That means Jesus spoke to him directly and gave him a job to do. And he was eventually martyred for his persistent love for Christ and Gentile alike. If that guy isn't close to perfection, what chance do I have? Answer number one, and that's a question. What chance do I have at perfection? Answer number one, no chance. No chance at perfection. We have no chance of attaining perfection or attaining salvation on our own or securing the love of our God by all our goodness and our big deal attributes that ultimately add up to flaming garbage. Nothing about me could make me good enough. You're right. If Paul can't do it, especially after that enormous checklist of greatness, then I definitely have no chance of becoming perfect. Have I wrote any sacred canonized letters lately? I wrote a whole sermon about Will Ferrell last week, so no. Or have you opened up the gospel to every Gentile in post-resurrection history? I opened the double doors so that people could come up the stairs. Actually, I didn't even do that. Trish did that, so... No, I haven't opened very many history-changing doors. Ever have a divine encounter with Jesus after going blind for several days? Well, I thought I lost my contact lens at the water park the other day. I didn't. And when I got it in, it wasn't Jesus I saw, but a big hairy man in a very small swimsuit. So I am not like Paul in very many ways at all. I fall short of even Paul's standard, and Paul's standard compared to Jesus' standard is there's a huge gap there, an eternally huge gap there. I don't even meet Paul's standard, never mind Jesus' ultimate standard for human perfection. So answer number one is that we have no chance at perfection at all on our own. Answer number one, however, leads to answer number two, and it's a better answer. The real answer to what chance do we have at becoming perfect is that it's not about striving for perfection. It's about striving for Jesus. Now, Jesus is perfect, but those two things are not the same. Striving for perfection is what the Judaizers were trying to do to the Gentiles. Striving for perfection is what marked Paul's life before encountering Jesus. Striving for perfection is what many church leaders today demand of their followers and then completely ignore themselves. Striving for perfection is a wayward game. It will never happen for you. But you can strive for Jesus. Jesus is perfection. But striving for perfection versus striving for Jesus are two completely different things. One is relational. One is rule-based. One leads to condemnation. One leads to eternal life. That word striving, or to use the language of verses 13 and 14, straining, pressing onward for the goal. That pursuit of Jesus is the great steeplechase that we're all locked into as brothers and sisters in him. He is within reach. Perfection is not. Perfection is not within reach. He is within reach. In fact, he's right here and he's within us. 
This racing imagery, this is not new to Paul by any means. He uses it to convey the discipline necessary to pursue Jesus, as in 1 Corinthians 9. It says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So that racing imagery is about discipline. He uses racing imagery to convey apostolic purpose. That means, what is his goal as an apostle of Jesus Christ? Well, in Galatians 2, he's teaching the leaders in Galatia, and he says, I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. That's also how he uses it. You see here Philippians 2 as well, which is just one chapter before this when he says, then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Well, the context of him saying that, just as he said to the Galatian leaders, he's saying to the Philippians, you need to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, do not bicker. I don't want to misquote it. Um, Sorry. Do everything without complaining or arguing that you may become blameless and pure. That... If you are presented blameless and pure on the last day, then my race, my task of making you as spotless as possible will be validated. So he uses both of these in the context of my job is to get you as saved as possible, get you as close to Jesus as possible is a way better way to say that. My job is to to make you the best disciples you can be. That's my race. Keep growing. That, that's what Paul's saying here. And he uses racing imagery for that. But mostly, the most common use that Paul has for racing imagery is to demonstrate how followers of Jesus need to keep their focus on the prize ahead. In Acts 20, we studied this a year ago or maybe more, I don't know. But in Acts 20, he's saying goodbye to his friends in Ephesus. And it's a very emotional scene. And this is what he says. He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. That sounds pretty familiar. A lot of that language is right here in chapter 3. Running the race, tasks that the Lord gives. My life is worth nothing to me. That's what Paul said in chapter 1 of Philippians. It sounds familiar. And so does 2 Timothy 4, where he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. Paul mentioned that as well in chapter 2, I think. No, it's the end of chapter 1. Sorry, I don't want to be wrong. I hate being wrong. I don't even know where it is. It's in Philippians somewhere, the drink offering talk. Um, anyway, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Beautiful imagery. It's a beautiful metaphor. But he uses it to try to impress upon the people he's teaching, keep your focus where your focus belongs. Philippians was most likely written some five years before his martyrdom. We mentioned that it's probably written while he's in prison in Rome. He would be released from that house arrest, probably travel back to Philippi, but then he'd be arrested again and executed. So Philippians was about five years before his his martyrdom. But 2 Timothy was the last letter that he wrote. He may have written it weeks, even days before his beheading. It it was that close to the end of his life. And you hear it. The language moves from present tense in Philippians of straining to past tense in 2 Timothy. Fought. I have fought. He knows the end is here. He goes from pressing on towards the goal to having finished the race. So the language is of completion. But the purpose of the imagery is the same in both cases. The race 
isn't a race towards greatness or goodness or perfection. It's a race towards Jesus himself. And that race is never over. Even in 2 Timothy, he's using language that makes it sound like his race is over, but he's writing a letter. He's still teaching. So no, Paul, your job isn't done. You're still doing work. Even when you can see the finish line, it's right there. He knows the end is coming. He's still racing. Even when he says he's done his race, his race isn't done. Which means he's still straining towards the prize. The race isn't quite finished yet, Paul. And our race isn't over yet either. No matter what your age is, no matter what place in life you may find yourself in, no matter what experience you may or may not have serving in the kingdom, no matter what your excuse is, your race is not over. It's not over till he decides it's over. Our pursuit of Jesus is perpetual because the race is never finished until it reaches biblical perfection. And biblical perfection isn't about to-the-letter idealistic rightness. Biblical perfection is about completeness and fulfillment. And again, that is only found in Jesus. So your race is not done until you're in the arms of your Lord Jesus. And he's saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Then you will know that's your prize. Your race is done. Good job. The funny thing is that even though it's striving for something in the future, even though Jesus, we can't fully achieve that relationship with Jesus we're striving for now, we can't be perfect in that way now, the funny thing is that even as we strive towards Jesus, we become more and more like him here on earth. Eternal life isn't for something in the future. Eternal life isn't something that happens eventually. Eternal life is for you right now. You can have eternal life right now. You are engaging in eternal life as you sit here in your pews this morning. As we strive and strain and race, we do indeed become more and more like our coach, more and more like our master, more and more like Jesus. So we do get better. There's an element of bearing more good fruit, more love, more joy, more peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You could add, you could add dozens of things to that list. Humility is a big one all throughout Philippians. Unity is a huge one throughout Philippians. The more we race towards him, the more we become like him, the more those things grow off of us. So there, it's not about perfection, but there is an element of getting more and more like Jesus, of getting better. And your race isn't done. You still have growth to do until you're with him. That's what happens when you're coached by the best. You model your race after the best. And Paul had a lot to look back and see progress on, Right? Of all people, Paul could look back and see all the great things he had done. He wasn't perfect, but as we've said, he's pretty dang good. Yet when he says in verse 12 that he is forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, what is he forgetting? What do you think he is putting aside and forgetting about? Do you think it's all his mistakes? Do you think it's all his persecution of the church, his past identity, someone who hated Jesus? That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about forgetting his mistakes or his sins or his past identity. In the context of verses 4 to 6, it tells us that he's talking about forgetting his successes, amazingly enough. He is putting behind him all of his successes. He's refusing to be like the steeplechaser in the video who starts celebrating too soon and forfeits his victory. That was a danger for Paul. He had accomplished a great many things. It's not time to turn back and celebrate now. If Paul had at any point stopped and thought, well, I've probably served enough. Look at all the great things I've done for the kingdom. That's probably good for now. I'm sick of jail. I'm sick of dealing with 
uptight Judaizers and wayward churches and violent Romans, it's time for me to hang up my cleats and step away from the gang. Best of luck, Philippians. I'm out. I'm off to have good wine on the beach somewhere. Signed, Paul, the former apostle. If he had done that, he would have been, it would have been game over for Paul. It would have been like the steeplechaser or the dirt bike rider or the Washington Wizards player. Paul can't make that kind of rookie mistake. He knows better. If he had slowed back his race to look back, not towards a competitor, but towards his own successes, he would have ceased pursuing Jesus' glory and he would have been pursuing his own glory. Taking our eyes off the goal ahead always means we set our sights on something below. If we're not looking above, we're looking below, obviously. We're looking at something fallen, something to use... The words from last week, something fleshly, something temporal and broken and innately fallen. Maybe it's the concerns of this natural world. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What race are the pagans running? They're running the race to meet their own needs, the race for independence, self-sufficiency. They're running the race of social advancement through material things. And it's a fruitless, empty, prizeless race. And we're guilty of running that race too. Or maybe we take our eyes off the goal and look backwards. As we said, we can trip up on our own self-satisfied glorification of our own successes when we look back and say, look at all the great I've done. And we get self-satisfied and content. Those successes, by the way, those aren't even our successes to claim anyway. Those are his successes as Paul would teach. But it's just as easy to look back and get tripped up, not by our successes, but by our own self-loathing mistakes. And that's what I'm guilty of more often than not. It's easy to look back at who we were and get hamstrung by feelings of unworthiness or insecurity. It's easy to look back at our past selves and long for parts of that old life which have already been nailed to the cross. Old addictions, old lifestyles, old habits. But those are dead things. An athlete can't feed himself just on junk food all the time. Those things are dead and gone and worthless. You are a new person. You are not that person anymore. You may make some of the same mistakes because, again, you're not perfect, but that's not who you are anymore. That old person is dead and gone. Don't look back at that person. Don't look back longing for that person, but also don't look back in shame of who that person was. That person's gone. Keep your eyes focused ahead. Some Christians sputter out at the end of the race because they celebrate too soon and deny God the glory that he alone deserves. They lose their power and their effectiveness because they are content and self-satisfied. I hope that's not you. I hope that's not me. Other Christians, excuse me, other Christians sputter out at the end of the race because their head is hung so low in shame and self-doubt that they can't bring themselves to lift their head up and, and fix their eyes on the glory ahead. They lose their power and their effectiveness because they can't remember how much value they have in the eyes of their heavenly coach. It's easy to forget that. I know how broken I am. So it's easy for for me to say, how could God ever love me? Well, he loves me enough that he sent Jesus to die for me. He loves me enough that he calls me into the race. He massages my shoulders and he towels off my sweaty forehead. and He says, get in there and run this. You can do it. That's how much he loves me. So arrogance and ignorance and lack of focus, those are all rookie mistakes. Don't be a rookie. Don't make those mistakes. Keep your eyes on what is ahead. Victory. Keep your muscles pumping, fueled by your knowledge of the one who empowers you. Don't make those same rookie mistakes that that Paul warns about. The opposite of a rookie mistake, by the way, and I'm almost done, the opposite of a rookie mistake is savvy veteran focus. 
That's why veteran teams do well in the NBA playoffs. Because those old guys who have played for 10, 15 years, they know what it takes to win. You always want some grizzled veteran on your NHL team too. Some graybeard who knows what it takes to win. The sacrifices that must be made. They're the ones with the grayest of the beards. That's that savvy veteran focus. Paul wouldn't use the, the phrase savvy veteran focus. He would use the phrase maturity. It's just exactly the word that Paul uses in the last two verses of our passage. Maturity. The Greek word for maturity has the same root as the word translated perfection. They come from the same source. Maturity and perfection. They both have to do with fulfillness or fulfillment and fullness and completeness. They are both processes. Maturity and perfection are both processes that can't be finished until glory. Can't be finished until the other side of this life. So it's quite natural for Paul to say, we're not perfect in one breath, and then in the next breath, use the same root word and declare, we are mature. We're not perfect, but we are mature. We may not be perfect, but we're focused on the right things, and that is the definition of spiritual maturity, focused on the right things, things of God. That's maturity. We can't be perfect, we sure can't be mature. Some of us more mature than others. Paul writes, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Notice how he makes concessions for the sake of unity, by the way. This is a big deal for Paul. And he says, you know what? If you disagree with me, that's okay. I'm sure God will bring us to a consensus. I think that's really remarkable. Verse 16, only let us live up to what we have already attained. What have you already attained during this great marathon we call the Christian life? What have you attained? What's Paul talking about? Well, you've attained the sacred stories of the historical Christ. You've attained the servant heart of the crucified Christ. You've attained the selfless power of the resurrected Christ. You've attained Christ the way, Christ the truth, Christ the life. In short, you've attained Jesus, the Christ. And he is everything. The rest is trash compared to the Christ. So what have you attained? Everything you need to be mature. Everything you need to be on your way towards maturity. You've got everything you need. You've got the Bible. You've got truth there. You've got his presence in you. You've got the Holy Spirit empowering you. You've got everything you need to run this race well. So be mature about it. Keep your eyes focused on what's ahead. Be a savvy veteran. Beware of rookie mistakes during your faith race. If you are mature, you will keep your focus on him as you continue your race right to the finish line and beyond. I don't know what the finish line is because it's not death. For us who believe, there is no finish line. You just are glorified eternally, and it's never over. You will, however, get weak during your race, but in your weakness, he is strong. You will get tired during your race, but he is your rest. You will get thirsty during your race, but he is living water. And you'll be tempted to turn your eyes to the side or behind you or below you. You'll be tempted to take your eyes off of him Don't make those rookie mistakes. Rookies are prone to rookie mistakes because they take their eyes off the ultimate goal. Keep your eyes on Jesus and run with all that you've got. There will be a celebration greater than you can imagine. And we catch glimpses of that celebration even today. That victory is visible in glimpses even here on earth. But don't pump your fist too soon. Don't let up. You are good enough and he's making you better. You can do this. Keep straining, keep seeking, keep serving. Ultimately, the video that I showed you at the beginning, that video isn't about the failure of the Oregonian race. That's what we focus on. Ultimately, I think the focus should be on the success of the Washingtonian 
runner. Don't look at the guy who failed. Don't be like that guy. That's a rookie mistake. Be like the other guy. The other guy didn't give up. He kept his eyes on the goal ahead. And just when it seemed like he was going to lose for sure, he gave it all he had right to the end. And he won. That can be our story too. It's not about perfection, but it is about victory. So we're going to sing. I mentioned that Angie gave you a little bit of foreshadowing. She played In the Secret. I think whoever wrote In the Secret, which was Andy Park, I think Andy Park was obviously reading Philippians 3 when he wrote this song because the second verse is right out of Philippians 3. I want to know you. I want to seek your face. That's what Paul says is the only thing worth anything. I want to know you. And then you'll see the second the second verse is all that racing imagery. So Ange and Trish, if you wouldn't mind coming up, and we'll sing the song to close. And as they're coming up, I'll just pray. Jesus, thank you that you call us to this race and you coach us up in this race and that you are the prize at the end of this race. Help us to strive not for perfection, but for you. We know that you are perfect and that you make us more and more like you. But help us to keep our eyes on you and your kingdom and to serve you well. Help us to never give up. Help us to have endurance and strength. Help us to know our purpose. So we thank you that we don't have to be perfect. We just have to pursue you. Thank you for this race that you call us to. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. superhuman spiritual perfection super guy